Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The passage of time will now bring you to something strange, unique, and idiosyncratic. Have a good time. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome yet again to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. Today, we're back with another installment in our ongoing On Writers series, in which uh, Mel and I chat with today's best horror writers about King, his influence, and obviously how their work fits into the grander milieu of genre fiction. If you're new to this series, scroll back and check out our interviews with previous guests, uh, Stephen Grand Jones, Gemma Files, and John Darnell. As always, I'm joined today by Mel Castle. Say hi, Mel. Hi, Mel. How's it going? It's pretty good. This is a chat that I have been excited for for a long time, and so I'm glad that we are releasing it. Yeah, uh, our guest today is Brian uh, Evanson. He's a prolific writer, academic, and as you'll learn in this interview, gamer. Uh, Brian first made a splash with the 1994 publication of Altman's Tongue, a collection of stories that drew some pretty well-documented controversy at Brigham Young University, where he was teaching at the time, for their violent content. Uh, We'll talk about that a little bit, how violent uh, his work is. Um, He went on to publish numerous novels and collections, including Father of Lies, Last Days, and 2021's The Glassy Burning Floor of Hell, uh, which is what we'll be primarily discussing today. Uh, He's also won several notable awards, including the O. Henry Award, the Shirley Jackson Award, and a Guggenheim Fellowship. Nothing to sniff at. Mel, you and I both have uh, previous experience with Brian, uh, you much more so than me. He spoke in a creative writing class I was taking many, many, many years ago, and I was struck by him and uh, then and really enjoyed his work. Uh, but you've studied with him more directly, yes? Yeah, I did a really fun writer's workshop that was focused on horror in Transylvania, so in Romania. And he led that workshop, and it was just wonderful, uh, a wonderful travel experience, a wonderful writing experience, uh, definitely left a, a deep, indelible impact on where I went from there. Did you write about vampires? No, I did not write about vampires, but I did start a doppelganger story there that that remains unfinished. <laughs> Finish it. I love doppelganger stories. Uh, Brian's got some of those. But yeah, why don't you, um, you, I think we're both pretty familiar with his work, but you more so than me. So I guess like, why did you think he'd be a good fit for, uh, this was very much, you know, something you raised and I was like, oh, hell yes. So why did you think he'd be a good fit for this? And what is it you find really appealing and distinctive about his work? So I have been considering this question just because every time I read a story or a collection or anything by Brian, even like um, recently he did a short story for a Magic the Gathering spinoff or, or, uh, that was that was about vampires, and mm-hmm. that was so fun. I just think his work is extremely, um, maybe unapologetic is a good word, or there's there's a true faith to the writer's obsessions that runs through all of it. He is either having the most fun, or he's just diving as deeply as humanly possible into something that you can tell fascinates him, mm-hmm. and he's just not beholden to anyone or anything while he does so and that means the stories are free of his authorial influence they're free of pressures that might be exerted by genre they're free of pressures that might be exerted by the market they're free of pressures that might be exerted by traditional expectations um even though they deal with conceits that i think are are quite old or that people will recognize you know we'll talk about doppelgangers we'll talk about possession we'll talk about losing control we'll talk about um there there's so much there's intergenerational family fears in here um these are things that are familiar but i think he just leans so heavily into what interests him and that sounds like it might be easy for a writer but i actually think and maybe even increasingly so it is hard like Mm. writers always want to ask permission to (laughs) to do what they want out of fear of being unoriginal or out of fear of not being the best. And like, 
I, I don't know, there's a fearlessness in Brian's work that makes it so memorable and and the language becomes something apart from all those pressures as well. Um, it's it's hard for me to put into words, which I think I say on every single one of these episodes, but um, I find him to be just an extremely inspiring voice. He's someone I go back to read when I feel like I need to get back in touch with myself as a writer not because I want to ape his style, but because I can see that fearlessness running as such, such a strong current through his work. Yeah. And he's somebody who really, um, there are a lot of recurring themes and images that are in his work. One of them is mutilation or the removal of limbs or um, other body parts. And so there's like a real grotesqueness, I think, to his work, but there's no, but he, unlike some writers, uh, and I certainly have no problem with writers who do this, but uh, he doesn't really revel in the viscera of it all. There's almost a curiosity and a bemusement to the way he approaches uh, some of the grotesque qualities of his work. There's a, a, a kind of fascination with bodies, which I think mm-hmm. you find in a lot of body horror. Uh, but yeah, his work isn't... Um, it doesn't lean into, I think, the the bloody or the, the blood and guts of it all, but rather there's this real restrained quality. There is the the idea that he's viewing a lot of this from a distance, and I find that very compelling. Um, but he's also somebody who doesn't, who really bops around in terms of uh, genre. So it's not like in the glassy burning floor of hell, there's a lot of stories that are lean much more sci-fi than horror. Um, so yeah, I guess like, how would you characterize the way he plays with genre and his, uh, kind of prose style? We talk about this a bit in the interview and I do think, so he's, he's just, he's just very smart. Like he knows, he knows a lot about genre conventions and that leaves him free to play with them. Mm-hmm. And we talk a little bit about how that can happen on the level of language, as well as the level of like tropes and expectations. Um, and so I think, I think he just has a fascination with uh, a sort of folkloric voice sometimes or a fairy mm-hmm. tale-esque voice um and i know that he that he enjoys kind of teaching and learning about fairy tales uh in general um and so i i just think he brings uh, a fascination with the trappings of genre to his stories yeah. but still remains faithful to like whatever idea was the germ of the story to begin with and so then those trappings can be sort of switched out almost like fashion um yeah. in order to convey a really cool or disturbing or cool and disturbing idea and this book I think um is quite disturbing <laughs> <laughs> and so like I you never quite leave the arena of of horror but there's so much spackling it from from other genres that uh and that includes hope that includes sci-fi that includes like fairy tale-esque things and it includes family dramas um and so yeah I think I think he's just someone that can wield all of the the tools of genre in a considered way, but also in a way that leaves the story still very neat and, as I said, faithful to its to what it's trying to accomplish and faithful to its world. Yeah. Uh, another fun detail about Brian, and we do get into this, is that he also writes under the name uh, B.K. Evanson, and that's where he does work that kind of is perhaps less, quote-unquote, literary than his other work. He's written uh, books that exist within the world of the Aliens franchise. He's written books that exist within the world of the Dead Space uh, video game franchise. And uh, he's also penned books with Rob Zombie and uh, the Purge writer-director James DeMonico. He contributed with the Lords of Salem novel, uh, yeah, which is, you know, a riff on Rob Zombie's movie of the same name. So it's it's pretty cool, just this like huge breadth of work that he's done. And yeah, we get into it in um, the episode as well. But I think it's just so cool for somebody who is such a good literary writer to also sort of dip their toe in this sort of world of pop culture, uh, IP um, spinoffs and things of that nature. I think it's neat. He's also got works of nonfiction. He's written about the author Robert Coover. And um, and also Raymond Carver. So it's, I think it's really cool that he's got all of that. He's also a TV writer too. He just worked on Peacock's Friend of the Family, which is uh, kind of a retelling of a documentary called Abducted in Plain Sight. Did you ever see that? No, I did. I did not. It's, it's, I'm such not a... up on my true crime, but I'll, oh man. I saw, I saw the, I, one of the very first screenings of Abducted in Plain Sight. It's about a 
a girl who is abducted by her neighbor who um like the name of the show on peacock is a friend of the family and it is an extremely disturbing story because it's one of those tales where it's like as an outsider all you can do is scream how did you let this happen but then yeah, like, how did you not know or how did you yeah right but then i think what the documentary and the show does a really good job of showing is it's not that you know clear right. cut sometimes and um yeah so he wrote on that which i did not know until we spoke to him and i thought i i was very impressed with that series so it was cool well, to these find are all kinds of genres it, well. yeah it makes sense that yeah he can genre hop on this level too he's also really into philosophy i think he knows a ton mm-hmm. about the different schools of philosophy and philosophers and that impacts his work as well yeah anyways we've prattled on long enough uh this is a really fun interview with brian we hope you enjoy it check it out and uh you can find his books i mean i assume wherever you buy books but the newest one is called the glassy burning floor of hell it's a collection of stories we talk about several of them in this episode we don't spoil anything so don't worry about it uh his work i think is a little hard to spoil too because it's really about the journey (laughs) but uh but you can find those books and then he's also as he reveals here he's got a new book coming out in what do you say 2023 i believe so uh yeah so more in uh more info in the episode there and uh stay tuned for that all right bye everyone All right, we are here with Brian Evanson, an author that I deeply, deeply admire personally, and I know Randall does too. Um, And we're going to talk about his latest short story collection, The Glassy Burning Floor of Hell, as well as other horror adjacent concerns. But of course, being a Stephen King podcast, Brian, we have to ask you out the gate, what is your relationship to his work, if indeed there is one? I mean, it's funny with Stephen King. Um, I am a huge Peter Straub fan. Oh, yeah. And and have read pretty much all of his work. And I kind of, I, for whatever reason, as a kid, I didn't read much Stephen King. And then once I started reading Peter, um, you know, they, they wrote two books together. And so that was my first kind of entry in. Um, and then, um, yeah, so I, I, I would say it's a late influence is, is what I would say. And weirdly enough, it's like the, the stuff I know the, the best are things like Mr. Mercedes and the outsider yeah. and, and the Institute. So kind of late Stephen King. Um, and I kind of read forward and backwards at the same time, I suppose. Yeah. Nice. Are so, you a fan of the Talisman and uh, Black House? Is I, I do like I do like those. Yeah, I like the Talisman and Black House quite a bit, actually. And I do like uh, Stephen King stories, actually, quite a bit as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think he's pretty pretty great that way. But you know, I um, there's all sorts of stuff that um, I haven't um, read in the earlier um, uh, part of his career that I, I need to get to. I, I think I've read Pet Cemetery, and I've uh, and that may be almost it. Maybe Christine wow. as well. That's a good one to it, do, though. <laughs> That's a really yes, good yeah, yeah, early. Yeah. Right. Um, if you, we also have a lot of uh, Peter Straub heads who listen to this podcast, and I know some who have always wanted to get into him a little bit more. Uh, one of our uh, other co-hosts has been binging all of Straub's books. For you yeah. personally, where would you recommend if someone wanted to get into him to start? If it's not uh, yeah. one of the King out of uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, you know, to be honest, I I think the the his his book of stories is the collected stories is is a great place to yeah. selected stories is what it is is a great place to start. Um, but pretty much everything is good. Um, I mean, I think he has a very distinctive style, uh, and and you you know pretty quickly uh, if you're going to like it or not. Um, a lot of people say ghost story is a place to start and, yeah. and I like ghost, ghost story. I think it's good. My favorite is probably, there's a little novella he wrote called the ballad of Ballard and Sandrine. I've uh, actually read that one. Yeah. yeah I haven't read yeah. a ton, but that one's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's very much kind of weird, uh, fiction and, and very, very odd. And, and, um, but then I just read, uh, I just read three of his books this year because he he passed away. I'm going to go to his um, memorial in, in March. He, there's a memorial for him in, in New York and Brooklyn. Um, and uh, so I read Shadowlands, I read um, Julia, and I read um, his first book, um, um, which is, suddenly I'm forgetting the title, You Should, You Should um, um, Look at Me Now or something. I'm, I'm totally... Okay. That's embarrassing. So, oh, it's um, and and I think um, uh, Shadowlands is just a masterpiece. It's really really good, and uh, um, I was very impressed by it. And then Julia, which was written not too long apart, is like, you know, also really really good, but just really uh, 
really different. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so one is this kind of very, um, you know, very kind of fantastical piece that takes place in this, um, you know, kind of um, upstate, uh, uh, kind of um, uh, some kind of ruined property, basically, or something that becomes a ruined property. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then the other one takes place in London. It's a kind of ghost story. There's a kind of traditional ghost thing going on. And then, if you could see me now, the one that came before that um, is takes place in Nebraska. And it, it feels almost like what would happen if Willa Cather decided to write a really weird story and drank a lot. <laughs> um, and then so and so so the those three books, which are kind of, I think, in order, they're all doing really different things. And that's yeah. one of the great things about Peter is that you he loves language, but you really can see him just trying different things in relationship to the genre as you go from book to book. Yeah. yeah, it's always such a treat, I think, too, when you get any sort of sneak peek into a close relationship between authors just by reading their fiction. And it was so clear that they were so close. And and it's just lovely to see that on the page. Yeah, even. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, I'm curious, sort of in a broad sense, when we're talking about King, like, for you, as somebody who isn't as familiar with his work, would you how would you sort of characterize the influence he's had on the genre? Because, um, you know, I would say that having read your work, it's it's, you know, I think, very different from the way he yeah. writes and uh yeah, in yeah. ways yeah that are great so it's like do you think that there is a like his influence was perhaps um an impediment in some way to your style of writing uh finding an audience <laughs> you know i i don't think so i mean i actually so so the work i've read by him I, so at this point i probably have read six or seven books at least mm-hmm. maybe maybe even slightly more than that um and i know there's a lot more than that so so i'm, I'm not a lot more <laughs> right <laughs> Um, but but so I'm not unfamiliar, and yeah. and, and I think he's very good at, at certain kinds of things. I think he's he, he's very good at kind of creating situations and character. Um, very good at kind of certain things he does with mood as well. Um, he he just was. I mean, I think with King, he was just in in the right place at the right time for the kind of boom, and then also the way in which movies came in as well. And that's yeah. that's the thing is it's like um, those movies that were based on his his books were. In, incredibly influential for me as a kid yeah and and I wouldn't have given that up at all you know and I know for instance The Shining was was, I I love that movie I've taught it in horror class I know King himself is not crazy about the Kubrick adaptation which I totally understand and you know as as someone who's seen how people propose to adapt your work you know it's easier to understand that as well um but but yet there's something just just um you know for me as 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 a kid watching that when i say kid like 14 or 15 i guess oh, sure. um uh i you know it did something that was different than anything else i'd ever seen and, yeah. and so yeah. so i i feel you know uh, i feel like his influence is both you know there's the books and then there's the way in which the books have become movies and then there's just the kind of general feel in the popular culture and and from my point of view um, it's not a bad thing that he does something different for me. I still think it kind of opens doors and absolutely and possibilities. Mm-hmm. So, and then what happens is people say, "All right, what else can I do?" And and yeah, you know, and, and here here I am doing my old little weird thing. And, and <laughs> yeah, people are like, well, I don't like it. Yeah, let's let's talk about your little weird thing because okay. in <laughs> in reading a couple of past interviews, I've noticed that a lot of people. Um, they like to describe your your work uh, with the word ruthless, which I think is very funny because it implies that like other authors are being really merciful and you're like, no, no mercy, no mercy for me. Um, what do you think that people are latching onto in your work when they're calling it ruthless? Um, and do you like do you like that descriptor? Um, I, I don't mind that as a descriptor, um, but I, I don't know that it is necessarily one that I would use. Um, I mean, I think that probably when they think of my work as ruthless, it is, I mean, I am kind of willing to to kill pretty much anyone in my work. <laughs> and and then I also, um, you know, I'm, I'm interested in things like mutilation and, you know, other fun things like that. And um, and also I think, but it's more than anything, just just um, trying to be very precise with language. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's ways in which you can talk about these things that, um, that that kind of veil them or hide them in various ways. And a lot of my work, there is a certain amount of ambiguity in it. Um, but but there are moments that are just very, very crisp in terms of what you're experiencing or seeing. So maybe it's that. I don't know. Yeah. We have to get them. I probably should do a focus group with those people who are saying I'm ruthless and figure it out. 
Yeah, it's definitely meant as a compliment. And when I hear it, yeah. I'm like, yeah, I want to read. I want to read what's ruthless, right? Right. <laughs> but, right. Um, I do think for me, part of it is like there is a matter of factness to the writing that precision that you're talking about. Um, and in a broader sense, there seems to be this like really rock solid loyalty to the world that you're creating where like yeah, nothing yeah. can can really impinge on that, right? Like it's not, yeah. you're not gonna kowtow to allegory. You're not gonna like yeah. meet expectations. Do you ever feel when you're writing that loyalty is being tested by like a new idea and you have to be like, that wouldn't, oh, that wouldn't fit here though. And and what wins out? Yeah. Does the world win out or does the idea win out? I mean, you, usually the the world wins out, and then I just I write another story in which the idea can can have a space to kind of breathe. I mean, yeah. there are every once in a while when I'm writing something like so so. Um, I, I wrote a book called Immobility, and in Immobility, there's these two characters who are kind of artificial humans who have a very limited lifespan and who are in the process of dying. Um, so it's family family drama, um, <laughs> and. Uh, um, and and initially i i just i knew they were going to die um but but uh, you know as i kind of moved forward i thought all right can i maybe i can have them not die and and it just didn't make any sense in regard to the world like i became very attached to them and 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 you know the result of that is the main character in the book is very attached to them and and kind of experiences their death in a different way but they still die you know so there was um, I, I so I, I I think that's about as much as I would see as as happening that you can kind of impinge or in, in a little bit on um, the way in which characters perceive what's going on in their world, but but to kind of change the dynamics or the logic of the world is is not something I think is all that useful. Mm. Yeah. And then speaking of character, something that has stuck with me from a workshop lecture that you gave. I'm sorry mm. if I butcher this, but I seem to remember you saying that like. You know, we always have the option to deprioritize character. It's not the end all be all to a story. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's yeah. not going to, you don't have to give it all the credit and not, not all the energy has to come from there. Um, right. And I'm wondering what aspects of character tend to be most relevant or resonant for you. And then what aspects you tend to kind of be like, take it or yeah. leave it with. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, I, I think for one of the tricky things with character is that we're we're so caught up in this notion that characters develop and change. And there's this kind of arc that we have of, you know, and this is something I, I do some TV work too. And, and this is something you come across all the time in TV. It's like, you know, on page 20, the character has to have gone through a realization or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, so that notion, I think, is something that's really kind of bound up in a lot of people's understanding of how writing works. Um, but then, like, if you are around people, which most of us are, you realize that people don't always change um and if they change they sometimes change for the worse um, they calcify the real hard <laughs> right uh yeah they calcify very hard it's like if you've ever been to thanksgiving dinner with a bunch of old people it's like yeah there's there's things that you know don't change and so so that's that's the thing i think with character is is that notion of realization which is really satisfying for you as a reader is something that that is uh maybe a little bit optimistic and so so i've tried kind of in in terms of when i'm writing characters to think about alternatives to that it's not that there's not characters who who change but there's characters who who know they should change and resist it there's characters who experience something and kind of turn away from it or deny it um, which i think is a really common thing in life as well um and and you know so all those kinds of nuances i think are things uh that that can come into character in ways that are productive and then the other thing is, you know, as you said, it's like character is not the only thing in in fiction. Um, you know, there's there's if if even if you're just using Aristotelian models, it's like you know you have plot, character, setting, action, so on and so forth. You have a bunch of things, um, and and those things kind of have a power and energy to them as well. There's there's uh, language as well. It's something that can kind of um, motivate the book and drive it forward. Um, I think more important for me than characters are interrelationships and the way in which mm. characters impinge on one another or interact with one another. And in those senses, it's like, when, when you think about it, when I was a kid, um, you know, I grew up Mormon, um, but I had a lot of friends who, who, who uh, were, were stoners and as one does. Um, and, uh, and so, and you act very differently when you're at church, as opposed to when you're with your stoner friends, as opposed mm -hmm. to when you're with your girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever. 
And so, and we have all these kinds of ways in which we, we kind of change and enter into different speech ways of speaking, depending on who we're around. And so that to me is more interesting than here's this character. They've started as this and yeah. that's what happens. Oh, did they change? Yes, they right. did. All right. Story's over. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And I feel that yeah. is very liberating from the pressure of, of backstory, which I feel is so ennobled yeah. sometimes to the point where I'm like, wondering yeah, yeah. why I don't have enough and then you're like you don't it's not actually relevant like it's so Freudian that we're like this obsession with right. like backstory right, right. Exactly. Um, if there's one thing that we get worked up about on this pod when we're reading Stephen King books is that we'll get seven pages of backstory uh, that literally serves the smallest point, not necessary at all. And it'll be beautifully written sometimes. But I think when King writes books that are, you know, a thousand pages long, we're just like, this could have been cut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I tend as a writer to gravitate more towards short stories than I do no novels. And I think that's part of the reason why is it's like I'm more interested in seeing how how little I need to kind of get something across as opposed to, you know, kind of, you know, I think novelists sometimes um, enjoy just wading into the world of their book and, and, you know, luxuriating in it a little bit. And, and, you know, right. I don't need to know the lineage of, of, you know, 30 people and uh, <laughs> where they come from and et cetera. So do you, do you ever, despite yourself, find yourself like drawn to a character inexplicably to the point where you're like, where you're like, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm getting like a little bit more intimate with this character than I, than I usually do. And yeah. So yeah. I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, you know, I, I think as a, as a human, I have a tendency to just like people, um, which is, it's a good trait, except if you're dating. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but if you, you know, I, I think that that is something with fiction as well, that, that as I'm writing these characters, I do actually, you know, I'm interested in them. I genuinely uh, like them and I'm curious about them, even when they're psychotic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, there, there's things about these characters that are just really, really interesting. Um, I just, I just wrote on this TV show for, for Peacock called A Friend of the Family. And oh yeah, I, I watched yeah, it. Yeah, it was, it was really fun to write on. But when we, we were writing on that, it's like, you know, it's about someone who basically is a sociopath or psychopath Yeah. Um, and his way in, he impinges on a family and and he was just so interesting because of that but you don't you don't necessarily want to meet him in in life um but you know the 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 challenge i think is you're writing something is is to have enough interest and empathy and understanding of characters that you can kind of get inside of their skins a little bit so, totally but yeah i mean i think sometimes i i do um there are characters i like better than others i guess is is what i would say and there are characters i start to feel very attached to uh, and that i usually just kill them off anyway <laughs> still an act of love um that's right that's right on a on a similar that's note well. i think talking about the sympathy from that side and and getting into the themes of this collection in particular um stories like the barrow men and the shimmering wall i feel like a portion of the horror in those for me could be chalked up to like a sort of awful cultural disconnect like Right. you know the, these people are never going to understand each other and the consequences right, right. of that are quite violent um right. do you right. so and i was going to ask it sounds like you've already answered this do you spend a lot of time thinking through the perspective of these beings um in the stories as you write even the most kind of non-human or or otherworldly ones uh, i i do but not i mean not to the point where like so for instance in the barrel man i i kind of understand the misunderstanding mm -hmm. and i understand a little bit of what they want but i don't understand it completely fully so i think that that probably with a story like that i i find myself positioned more on the side of the person who who is is in trouble in that story yeah 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 i mean um, i think that i think that's helpful because the reader is too in a lot of ways because we're yeah. kind of seeing it through that lens and i think yeah. the un the not knowing the not knowing what to say and the not understanding the full uh dynamic of what this relationship right. is and you know there's a dark humor to that because oh, uh it, and the end is so dark but it's also quite funny because it's like how did i end up here <laughs> so. right 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 yeah and I, I think it's it's a question of um yeah, I, I think that's it. Is it's like you, you I want to understand as as much as I need to understand to to make the character um, feel genuine and to make the story work. And I probably do understand a little bit more than the readers do. 
um, but I don't withhold a, a whole lot. Um, I'm yeah. pretty comfortable with uncertainty for some reason. It's just something that like, I, I don't mind kind of ambiguity and uncertainty as a place that I can live in. And so I, I kind of, with those stories are, you know, when I'm revising stories, I'm often, they often kind of get a little bit shorter. So there are some things that probably um, might have given a little more explanation that aren't in there, but but mostly, mostly not. Mm. Talking about that that uncertainty element, I was also thinking a lot about anxiety reading this book, which is, you know, I think a lot about anxiety whenever I read your work. Um, but I, I thought the relationship of these characters to control and their anxiety was really interesting to me in that I think when we think about anxiety, we are often told like the way to cope or the way to get over it is to like let go of the illusion of control. Like you're never going to have control, even let someone else make the decisions for you. But a lot of the stories in here are about how scary it is when that happens, when you cede yeah, control yeah. completely and something is piloting your body, perhaps literally. Um, mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm wondering if, you know, the, that, that sort of dualism is probably not as literal as I've outlined here, but like, how do you think about anxiety in this, in this collection and that idea of control? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think that that's a lot of these characters are, um, Voice is an issue for them. They have a hard time kind of making a decision or making a choice, which probably does have something to do with the way I work through the world as well. Like, like my preference would be for people to decide what I have for dinner. Same. Um, yeah. <laughs> but since my wife's preference would also be for that, it's like we're kind of at an impasse. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so I, yeah, I, I think that there is this kind of anxiety that's that's there, and characters are comfortable with a certain amount of anxiety, but usually there's a a moment in the story where the ground just gets too unstable for them, you know, or where, where they don't, they, they don't know how to move forward or what they can do or, um, you know, what, what happens next. And for me, that's a, um, you know, it's a really interesting part of the story to write because I, I feel those, um, you know, the intensity of those moments. And I try to write them in a way that, that hopefully readers experience that as, as well. There's something affective about the stories in terms of, you know, as you read them, you should feel a little bit of that anxiety as well, I hope. Yeah. To me, it was almost like, yeah, if you find relief in giving up control and then you realize this isn't the heaven you wanted. And in fact, you're, you're, right. ba you're back in hell. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, you have this question here too, Mel, that I was I was very interested in and that I or at least I related to when I was reading, which is sort of the tension between being human and being non-human yeah. and this sort of desire to well, like when you talk about this idea of of you know control, Mel, it makes me think about like that desire to be non-human and what might change about me in that process. And I think this fascination too. I think about leg, which is the first story in the collection yeah. and and just a such a great opener and you know you have this woman who has this artificial leg that is also something else and this utter fascination with what that leg is and what it can be and yeah. um and yeah so I don't know I think like uh like there's like kind of a wonder to that right and so like do you intentionally try to leave room for that kind of fascination with the non-human yeah, I, I think so. And I think that's something that's become more and more prominent in my work as time's gone on. So you can see it definitely in Glassy Burning Floor. Um, the, the book that I have uh, coming out after that, with this, which is called Good Night Sleep Tight, which comes out in not till like spring of 2024. Okay. Um, Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. 
That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. There's a lot of stories about relationships between post-humans and humans or, or non-humans and humans. And, and unlike The Barrel Man, I mean, a lot of the stories are written from the perspective of the, of the, of the yes. non-human or the, or mm. the post-human or the post-human. Um, and, and yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting question for sure. Yeah. I, that's like a huge pet obsession of mine is it's sort of the beauty of difference and body wonder being the flip side of body horror. So I, right. I'm trying my best not to ask you for recommendations throughout this whole interview, but if you have recommendations <laughs> for for really good post-human stuff. I mean, even reading this, I was like flashing back to crimes of the future and like wanting to watch right, that right. again. And right, um, right. so any any favorite post-humanists out there that, that you want to recommend? Um, you know, I really uh, liked, what have I liked lately that I've read? Um, I mean, I, the, I think part of the reasons I'm writing a lot of stuff is because I, I am not finding the stuff I, I want. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But Leech, have you read Leech? I have um, heard of Leech. Uh, Gretchen Felker Martin keeps recommending Leech Randall. Yeah. Oh, nice. Hyron Ennis wrote Leech, which I thought was really good, um, and has something about you know it's partly about possession and it's partly about infection and it's you know there's a kind of body horror thing going on there as well. Um, um, there, there's also um, two books that. Uh, um, Undertow has published lately that are both kind of in this vein, um, two novellas that they did, um, if I can remember the name of them, which which usually I can't. <laughs> um, help, That's okay. Help me um, by by um, Nabin Ruthnam. Okay. It's, it's really an interesting body horror book, but it also has a weird tenderness to it, which is mm -hmm. really, really remarkable, I think. And then there's another one called The Talisite um, by Rebecca Campbell. Um, which is kind of a, a war book set in 1916, but also is about kind of assembling, uh, re reanimating dead bodies and, and, and the kind of relationship to that. So, so those are three I could think of off the top of my head, but I'm sure there's others that, uh, yeah. No, that's yeah, great. Like, Thank you. Mel, Mel mentioned Crimes of the Future, David Cronenberg, and, yeah. you know, the notion of body horror. And we're talking about that within books. I'm curious, like, are you a Cronenberg fan? Are you a body, like, do you enjoy body horror as it manifests cinematically? I mean, I, I do. I don't, I'm not always like, let's watch a body horror movie. <laughs> but, uh, but I do like Cronenberg quite a bit. I think I've seen most of his stuff. I, I teach a, a horror uh, class. And I always teach something by Cronenberg, you know, yeah. varies from time, you know, depends on on where we're at, what I'm doing. Um, but but uh, yeah, I think he's he's quite good. I, I thought Crimes of the Future was 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 quite interesting and interesting to think about in relation to his earlier work, too. Yeah, that's what Mel and I have had many a conversation about that one. Yeah, yeah we were so divided on it. It's so fun. Uh, yeah, well, we both liked it. We just viewed it completely. Yeah, we did. I could Which see is, that. Yeah, that's part yeah. of the joy, I think, of, yeah, yeah, of yeah. a good movie. Yeah. No, for sure. And then Possessor, I really love Brandon Cronenberg's uh, movie Possessor a lot too. Yeah, I'm yeah. stoked for the new one, Infinity Pool. Yeah. Talk about an uncompromising vision. That was that was yeah. something else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, guess speaking of Possessor, possession is another huge theme in this in this collection. Yeah. Um, yeah, that yeah. sort of gets back at, at the control aspect, um, but people are are being literally possessed, but also there's like a, a through line of just people being used in ways that they're not um, mm -hmm. fully conscious of, even across like generations. Um, right. And just wondering what about that conceit is is frightening or magnetic to you? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think it's interesting to me just because um, we like to think of ourselves as separate and autonomous beings. And but so often our actions are impeded upon by others or, or also, you know, either consciously or, or unconsciously, we, we fall into these patterns. And so I, th I think that's one reason um, I, I think about that stuff. And then the other thing, especially with post-human uh, 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 stuff, I mean, I think that we, we tend a lot to think about artificial intelligences as uh, um, servants or slaves. And it's so interesting for me to think about that as a moment that can be reversed as well. You mm. know, it's a moment where whatever controls we put into place um, no longer work or allow for that dynamic to be inverted or, or subverted. 
So I suppose it's that as much as anything. It's also like I in graduate school, I, I uh, did a lot of work with with Hegel and and so much of that is kind of about the master slave dynamic and how that works. And, <laughs> and so I, I think that's something that's kind of um, circulating in my work sometimes in a way that. Yeah. We- and like that, the sense of everything you're saying and the sense of duality and uh, I don't know, the idea of a human self and maybe perhaps a shadow self, it yeah. makes me think of something Mel and I had discussed uh, as doppelgangers, which are yeah. my, the number one thing that like give me nightmares. It's he was texting me. He was like, he was like Palisade <laughs> scared the shit out of me. Yeah, <laughs> I was like Palisade was too damn yeah, much. Yeah. Uh, it was so fantastic. But like, uh, yeah, I'm curious, like are doppelgangers something that, is that something that's fascinated you for a long time? Yes, it, like when yeah. you hear those kind of stories about people who ask have actually encountered them like I don't know do you believe stories like that do you believe something like that could actually happen or is it just yeah. for you a fascinating metaphor well no I mean it, it can't be a fascinating metaphor but I do think there's something that, about doppelgangers that go beyond that and yeah. it's going back to this you know this notion of uh well no this uh, the, the, I, I had another conversation with people before but there was a, a twin going the notion of twins too thing about twins that's so weird is that they're they're both separate and not at the same mm-hmm. time, especially identical twins. And of course, you know they're separate. And as you get to know twins better, you don't want to kill one of them. You think it's important <laughs> to both be there. Um, but but I, I think it's that. It's this this kind of like with doubles, um, it's this sense of um, you know, identity and non-identity at the same time, separateness and, and not separateness. And also the 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 whole kind of idea of being potentially replaceable, I think, is something. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I, I took in grad school. There was a class called the Double, uh, which was was I was super excited to take. <laughs> um, and and that's something that for years I've been I've been really interested in and obsessed with. So, and all Love my it. characters, a lot of my characters. They'll, they'll think something with a part of their mind and then think something with another part of their mind. There's often this kind of duality or, or, or splitting that kind of occurs within them. Yeah. Yeah. It gets back to the tech point of view too, of like not knowing what part of this implant, I'm thinking of the second story in the collection is, yeah. is you and what part is not you. And yeah. Um, yeah. tech tech is scary these days. Yeah. No, it is. It, it super is. And yeah, that, that notion of, of where do you um, start or stop is, is really interesting. Mm-hmm. So, um, to what degree are your 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 ideas about the world? To what degree are your kind of even your tastes being formed by, you know, subtle means in terms of of the media you you know um, consume and things like that? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I almost feel like with the with the horror wonder connection, depending on the discipline, uh, you yeah. like skew towards one or the other. And with tech, it's always the focus is on the innovation. It's on the wonder, and we we forget about the monstrous bits. And yeah, with yeah. the yeah. with the body, it's like we always we're always like that's gross, and we forget about the wondrous bits. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, and that whole thing of like I can have an implant in my head. Um, you can either say it with excitement or with just you know, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. The language makes a huge difference, and I yeah, I yeah. want to talk about yeah. the language and also about genre. And one of my favorite sure. things about this collection is the way that language is able to hybridize and play with genre, just like on the level yeah. of the the sentence. Um, mm-hmm. So there there are quote unquote sci fi stories in here, but they also yeah. read very folklorically or like a fairy tale. Um, yeah. And I know that you're someone who thinks about genre a lot, so I'm curious about that blending process, and in particular how how language plays into it. Yeah, yeah. Well, so so I wrote so leg is one of those stories that's like that, where it's a sci-fi story, but it also has this kind of um, fairy tale like quality to it. And I I teach a fairy tale class at Cal Arts, um, and think a lot about that, and think about the way in which fairy tales develop and change uh, over time. And I think that you know it was kind of when I sat down to do it, I I wanted to to write a story that because there's there's different ways you could write that story. You could write it as a straight science fiction story, but there's something about kind of establishing a certain tone to the story and having a kind of like storytellery sort of way of thinking about it um that that um changes the way in which it's perceived as well uh it allows um you know because i i think it's basically yeah you could you could do it as a kind of straightforward thriller uh, space thriller if you wanted to but I, I think there's something for me more interesting about it being kind of very rapidly told as almost as if it's a fable and so that those more kind of 
gruesome elements of it are are things that are almost presented as if they're um, uh, I, I don't know as, as if they're 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 almost mythic. In some yeah, way. absolutely. Yeah. What can you, you could see? I mean, I could. Yeah, I was just gonna say. I mean, in a story like that, I mean, the way in which Leg kills people which he kind of just folds inside out and kills them and then kind of consumes them and kind of keeps their blood inside of them um, is something I could have spent a page or two talking about how sure. that worked. Uh, but it's more interesting for, for me with a story like that to do something that a lot of fairy tales do, which is um, they, they talk about something and just, just very, very quickly and just, just yeah. let you kind of go. So. Well, that precision is so important because yeah. really all you need there is the word slosh. I I feel right. when, when stuff I, is. I feel that way too. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's really funny. One of the things we do in in the fairy tale class that I teach is there's a, a a fairy tale I love, which was recently discovered, called the Turnip Princess. And the thing about the Turnip Princess is it's not polished. It's kind of just insane the way that it works and. You really get a sense of, you know, reading that and the, thinking about the genre of fairy tales, what's important, what's not important, what they feel like needs to be explained, what doesn't need to be explained. So there's all sorts of things that 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 a, a more polished fairy tale or a contemporary story would explain that they just pass over in silence. And then there's things about like the person's profession and things like that, that they feel really needs to be clear. And so that's <laughs> very strange. Like, here's how he spent his day as a baker. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So zooming out in terms of the horror genre, um, on the podcast, yeah. I think we talk a lot about what's new in horror. Randall was just on a wrap up of like, you know, this past year in horror. Um, yeah. You're about to be editing a horror themed issue of McSweeney's. Um, yeah. And the call for submissions, it had this line. To paraphrase John Clute, we're less interested in thinking of horror as a rigid genre and more in thinking of it as a, quote, peculiar sensation. So I'm wondering if there are any movements or trends or sensations within horror right now that are particularly exciting to you, whether it's yeah. written or on film or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think for, for me, one of the really interesting things about horror right now is the number of voices that... Um, haven't been prominent before that are starting to get attention, um, ranging from, uh, I think there's some amazing things going on with with Native American writers in horror right now, um, and the way in which they're approaching the genre, you know, ranging from Stephen Graham Jones to to like a lesser known writer like Natanya Pooley, um, who, who are just doing really interesting work. Um, and, but then also I think that, that I'm super excited about the fact that, um, uh, there's more interest in horror and in other countries and around the world right now. Mm -hmm. so, so for me, when Valancourt published that um, anthology of world horror, they did, they, they're doing kind of yearly anthologies of, of horror. Um, it, it just really made change the way in which I thought about horror just a little bit. And that notion of kind of being part of a larger community that, that, that doesn't stop at a na national boundary, I think is a really positive thing um, for, for, um, horror in, in general. Um, and then Valancourt has gone on to publish Attila Veris, who I wrote a book called The Black Maybe. This this was published this last year, a uh, Hungarian writer, uh, which I just thought was terrific. Uh, uh, and it's, it's he's someone who is very aware of what's going on in horror in the US, but also brings his own particular um, way of looking at it. Um, in a way that I think kind of revitalizes how we think about horror in the United States as well. Yeah. Um, there's like Luigi Mussolino, um, who who also is, you know, he's he kind of is Italian and he's not kind of Italian, he is Italian, <laughs> um, and lives in, in um, you know, up in the mountains and he's approaching it in a different way. Um, the book I read this year um, that I think was probably my favorite book that kind of qualifies as horror is... Uh, Monica Ojeda's um, Jawbone, okay. which is about a bunch of girls in a, a girl school, um, some of whom might be going crazy, and their teacher who was definitely going crazy. <laughs> and uh, and the, the thing that I like so much about it is that she, it's clear as soon as you 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 start reading it that she's seen so much horror 
and she's watched so much horror. She knows all the creepy pastas and, you know, yeah. just the whole range of stuff that she's bringing together. So it's just really satisfying. So, so I would think those would be some of the bigger, um, you know, the more exciting things for, for me at the, at the moment. Um, yeah. But I'll, okay. I'll say it is so cool to see in modern horror, the impact of creepypasta, uh, you know, the way that it's kind of been infiltrating a yeah, lot yeah. of modern horror media, because yeah. I, I I love reading creepypasta. It's very enjoyable to me and mm-hmm. to see it taken and I don't know, not I wouldn't call it elevated necessarily, but woven into more traditional narratives or, or yeah, novel yeah. length formats. It's, it's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. I also want to ask you, Brian, if you've heard of an upcoming horror movie called Skinamarink that is coming out. I have, uh, I have very not, soon. but uh, it, okay. has, it has a great name. <laughs> you, t- you talk about horror as a sensation or a peculiar feeling, things of that nature. Mel and I have both seen this movie. It's coming out uh, very soon and it's going to be on Shudder. And it is a movie that uh, very much, I think, is going to uh, both and rapture and delight audience or divide audiences to some degree it's very much about uh it's it's trying to re- sort of capture the the horror of being a child and waking up in the night and you don't know where your parents are and you're in a dark mm. house there's mm. no the narrative is is paper thin and it's uh filled with long sort of um uh i wouldn't call them nothing happening but it's just a long shot of say a, a corner that's dimly lit by the tv and we're kind of searching in all the darkness in the corners of the shot to try to find whatever it is is here or isn't here and it's uh yeah. the kind of movie that i think really resists a lot of uh narrative and is really about capturing the sensation and right. i i know the way i watched it uh i was tingling all over and i think it's that kind of experience and it's something i feel like i haven't seen cinematically before yeah, so well, something to check great. out yeah I'll, I'll definitely check that out in terms of movies that i've this year i mean i i thought barbarian was was quite interesting. <laughs> a blast yeah, mel but, and i saw that together yeah oh yeah yeah um yeah and i think that there, there's a turn in that which is just just great which <laughs> you know you know what the turn is the moment when you realize oh no it's not him after all i know i yeah. gasped it was so good a very yeah, good yeah. theater experience i i do love the the notion of um I, I guess it was like, I was asking, you know, what are developments or fads that you like in horror? But it was, the answer was more like, well, we're expanding. We're like broadening our, yeah. our like our knowledge of what horror can be and what it has, what it means and has already meant in, in a lot of different places. Right. So my next question was going to be like, how much movement do you think the genre can really permit? Is it developing and changing or is it cycling? And I feel like maybe we just don't even know. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good question. I hope it's developing and changing, but it may be cycling. I mean, you know, it definitely... Definitely, there is a kind of, um, you know, back and forth a little bit, but you hope that 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 when you go back, you don't go quite as far back um, as as you might otherwise. Um, I mean, my sense is that um, it changes because people who are young and who are beginning to write horror are now paying a little more attention to that stuff. Mm-hmm. So even if it cycles back, you have a generation or, or you know a group of writers who who suddenly have an, an, uh, another set of things that they can draw on. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if we're going to suddenly, it's all going to be like, you know, white people from New York. Um, <laughs> be the next, <laughs> the next wave. I mean, I hope not. So. It's um, also I'm a curious, trip when you consider that cycling is like a horror trope, cycling back echoing. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. we should be doing right. it anyway. So. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, something that I think we found notable about King as we go through his work is that he's, you know, I think one of the things that, um, I don't know, perhaps helped him stand out a little bit as a writer and has become kind of a signature of his work is how much he wears his pop, the pop culture influence on his Mm -hmm. sleeve. Um, and, uh, and I, I, I was, you know, looking through, um, the list of all the books that you've worked on. Uh, one of the things that's so fascinating to me is you also write under uh, the name BK Evans. And I noticed that you worked on, you know, an aliens novel, like part Mm -hmm. of the aliens universe. And you also worked on a dead space uh, novel. And um, I'm curious, like, well, first off, I want to ask, are you a dead space fan? Have you played all three games? I have played all three games. Yes. They're fantastic. I I, I played the first, first one, I guess, uh, before they asked me to do this project. And then the second one came out kind of early in the project. So I played that as well. Nice. Yeah, I was just telling uh, Mel about the scene where you get to put the needle in your eye, which is yes. one of the most horrific things I've ever played in a game. And I loved it. Right. But uh, but I'll say, like, how does what like, uh, A, how did that happen? How did you find your way into that universe as one of those writers? And B, how do you approach a project like that versus how you approach, uh, you know, something that right, you right. just came up with? Yeah. 
Um, I'll talk about that, but first I want to ask you, um, have you played the Callisto Protocol yet? No, I'm dying to. It's on right. my list. You got to do it. It's yeah. You'll find it satisfying if you like Dead Space. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it was super random. Um, there was an editor um, at uh, um, um, named Victoria Blake, who was at Dark Horse, and she and I had met at a at a conference and. And she got really interested in uh, a novella I wrote called The Brotherhood of Mutilation, mm -hmm. and which I made into a book called Last Days. And she really wanted to Dark Horse to publish Last Days. And they probably understandable were like, understandably were like, well, this is not really a comic. It's not really in the range <laughs> of what we do. Um, so she ended up kind of forming her own publishing um, company, Underland, and published it there, the first edition of that, along with uh, Jeff Vandermeer's Finch as well. But when she was still at Dark Horse and realized she couldn't do that, she approached me and said, you know, you're going to think this is a crazy idea, um, <laughs> but I want you to think about it. I want you to write an Aliens novel. And I was like, you know, I'm more of a literary writer. I don't really know. Yeah, I, I kind of did that. And then she was like, okay, that may be true. Um, but I want you to just write a one-page summary of what you would do for an Aliens novel. And so I was like, okay, I can do this. This is a nice person. I'm, I'm happy to try this. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and so I sat down and, and wrote up um, uh, a summary of what I do. And by the time I was done, it was like a 10-page summary. And yeah. I was like, okay, I could do this. This would be really fun. There's all sorts of things I want to do. So, so uh, she actually initially asked me if I wanted to do a Predators novel or an Aliens novel, and I said an Aliens novel because that was the one I connected to more, but but turned her on to Jeff Vandermeer, who did the Predators novel for her. Oh, cool. Um, and so... Um, so so yeah, it was it was that, and I I wrote that uh, was pretty happy with it. I think I learned a lot in terms of how to kind of put it together, and for me, one of the satisfactions of it was I I could write it very quickly. Um, was one of the things is I had an outline. I don't with with my other fiction, I don't tend to work with outlines. I can, mm -hmm. but I, I mostly haven't, and so I could work off that. And then also the deadline was so quick. Um, yeah, I had to write it quickly. Yeah. Um, but but one of the things I did with that book um, was uh, to keep myself kind of entertained was I made a choice of saying, I talked to a bunch of my friends and said, I, do you mind if I put you in this under a different name? Uh, the only caveat is that you will be hideously killed. <laughs> and, and they were all like, Sure, that'd be great. And so that's fantastic. A bunch of my friends from from Rhode Island, and then also Kelly Link is there under a kind of variation, and 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 Gavin Grant and a few other people. Love it. Um, I feel like that's such a wonderful gift to give your friends. Is I'm killing you in a novel, but it's gonna yes. be really cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. And when I did the Dead Space books, I did a little yeah. too. Um, and then the second one, I have a friend named Brian Kahn, and Brian was like, "Yes, you can kill me." But you know my name is an, is an acronym for rib cannon. Can you kill me with the rib cannon? I was like, okay. Can absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I noticed you also uh, worked on some books with Rob Zombie and James DeMonico, uh, yeah. who, you know, are both major horror filmmakers. And uh, like, I don't know, is that a process you enjoyed? Like, are you, are, you don't do you do much co-writing elsewhere? I know you've also worked on television. So what yeah, was yeah. that process like? Well, I mean, it was different with with you know, depending on the project. So, so first, I'd say about I should have said more about the the other books. It, it is a different feel. I mean, I yeah. think that that BK Evanson and Brian Evanson are relatively close, um, but but you know, those books are much more plot driven in some ways. Or or it's not that my other books aren't plot driven, but it's like the plot has to really um, carry the story, um, mm -hmm. right? For for the book to be you know approved and things like that. So. Um, yeah, I mean, with in terms of working with James and, and Rob Zombie, um, you know, it, it really was, uh, in both cases, I was kind of working off a um, script that they had for, for a movie. And so Rob was working on uh, Lords of Salem at the time, and, 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 and I had the, uh, the, um, uh, the summary, basically, of it in the script. And 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 took it and, and kind of within that parameters, I had a kind of, you know, arc that I was following, but I could kind of uh, expand it and kind of explore things that the movie suggested, but maybe didn't, it, didn't explore completely. And so 
So with that, I kind of worked on that. Rob, in the meantime, worked on the movie. His first cut of the movie was quite a bit longer than the final cut. Mm -hmm. And so one of the funny things is that there's all sorts of things that are in the book um, that are not in the movie because, and it's not that I invented them. I think a lot of people think I did, but, but there are lots of things that just weren't in the final version of the movie. So the movie's much more impressionistic. The book in some ways kind of fills in the gaps and explains some things. Um, See, the reason I wanted to ask you about this is because I think one of the things that helped me get into reading as somebody who, you know, now I'm, I'm a writer, I host a literary podcast. It's, it's, I started reading books like the Independence Day novelization when I was yeah. a kid and uh, uh, books that were adapted from the video game uh, Doom. There was a series yeah. of books. I grew up reading those and those were sort of almost gateways for me because I liked the games. Yeah. I liked the movies. So I, I read these things and those I read of, the X-Files novelization. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like those were stepping show. stones for me uh, to, yeah, yeah. I think, getting into more challenging fiction. Yeah. But even I think like I think that there's value in that kind of work. And um, you're the first author we've talked to that I've seen do that kind of work. And, mm -hmm. and but then also that you balance that with uh, the more literary work that you right, do. Right. I just, I think that's really cool. And I mean, that's what I almost just wanted to say. Yeah. Thank you for doing that because yeah. I think that kind of stuff really does open up uh, a pathway to people who wouldn't normally be yeah, readers. Yeah. And the fact that you can bring, um, I don't know, a sense of literary style to that sort of project, I think mm -hmm. it uh, is a very valuable thing. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, no, I, I, I'm proud of those books and I'm proud of the way they've, they've come together. And, you know, with the Dead Space books, um, the first Dead Space book I wrote, I, I wrote to, I, they had me write up an outline. I did the same thing. And yeah. at the end of the outline, I was like, all right, I'm going to do this thing, which suggests that a, a certain thing that we knew about the lore of Dead Space was a lie. Mm -hmm. and, okay. and I was like, they're never going to let me do this. Um, <laughs> but then they were like, yeah, this is a great idea. We can do this. We'll work it into, you know, the series going forward. And I was like, all right, well, this. Oh my God, I love that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I've had, uh, more than you know I, I people approach me about like my literary books too but with those books uh the bk evanson books i mean i hear from people who are like i was a big fan of the game um i hadn't read fiction for a long time i read this and i really love it and and often it'll lead them to reading other things or at least reading my work i guess yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's great, great. Yeah. with those pop culture books um, I don't want to call them pop culture books. The books yeah, tied yeah. tied to a different franchise that's pre-existing. Yeah, yeah. The genre conventions yeah. are are pretty rigid. Like you know, that's you yeah. have to follow a framework, or you you I mean, you know the universe. There's stuff there that's pre-existing that you work with, and yeah. I guess I'm just wondering when it, when it comes to your own work and genre, as someone who knows a lot about it and the conventions. Does it? Do you ever feel restricted by it when you're starting from nothing, or when is it restrictive, and when is it a fun, liberatory thing that you play with? I mean, I, I think with my own fiction, I, I um, you know, I read a lot, and I think often I, when I'm, an idea will come to me because I'm thinking about something I've read, and thinking, oh, this could have gone this other way, and and that'll some some sometimes be a seed to kind of lead me in another direction. I mean, genre is something that, I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in genre and I, I'm interested in the way that genre works. Um, I'm not so interested in, um, I've never been a rule keeper, exactly. Yeah. And so- Yeah, you so broke I'm the dead space rules. I know, yeah. <laughs> but they let me and then it yeah. suddenly it was a rule and then I had to figure out another rule to break. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I feel like um, you know, figuring out a way in which you can kind of take it. So, so one of the things about genre is that there's certain things that almost work as a shorthand so that people recognize them and they make sense to them. And, 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 you know, you, you, you can save yourself a certain amount of space and time just because the people understand how a genre works. And so the trick is figuring out how to kind of take advantage of some of those things. And then also push people in a direction, break things a little bit. And, and one of the big challenges for, for, my work that I like the best is trying to make it so something that that a genre reader will understand in a certain way and that a literary reader will understand in maybe a different way and then that there's a group of readers who are my ideal readers who have a foot in both genre and literature who who will understand it in both ways at the same time yeah um I did want to say I just love Kelly Link's take on it which she always says genre is the promise of pleasure and it's like you're, you don't have to like stick to it the whole time, but you right. are promising a certain right. amount of like, you'll recognize this. Right. 
Um, yeah. So anything that you're working on currently or that's coming down the bend that you can, that you can tell us about or that you want to tell us about? Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of stuff that's not that not literary, um, I'm doing a, uh, a module for Mork Borg. Um, which is a kind of uh, dark role-playing game. Oh, um, very fun. That done, yeah. Um, and then I, you know, a few stories. The the new collection, uh, Goodnight Sleep Tide, is coming out in spring of 2024, so it's a ways away. Yeah. I'm trying to write a sequel to Last Days called Phantom Limb. Nice. But, uh, it's, it's yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll get there eventually, but it's not quite there yet. So yeah. That's about uh, it. What drew you to do an RPG? Um, I had a friend who wrote to me about it in knowing that, so I was someone who grew up playing um, Gamma World, actually, and and then Dungeons and Dragons, too, but those yeah. two, two were really big for me, Gamma World, especially, um, and he he knew that, and he uh, uh, runs a game company, and he was like, you know, it was the same thing with, with the Victoria Blake at Dark Horse, he kind of wrote, and was like, now, don't think this is a crazy idea, what, what do you think? And I'm yeah. a real sucker for, um, if someone asked me to do something I've never done before, right? I have a hard time saying no, and the crazier the idea, the better. <laughs> and I'm really happy with how this come, came out, so hopefully people will be as well when, it, when it's actually out in the world. Do you know That's what awesome. it's called? Like, uh, are you able to say that? Yeah, it's. I think I am. So yeah, it's called the dark, <laughs> it's called the dark glinting with metal. Okay, cool. My um, my um my wife goes to a Gen Con every year, like a gaming uh, convention in Indianapolis, yeah. and she always like play tests a lot of the RPGs that are there. So I'll tell her to take a look out for that okay, uh, whenever it is out. Yeah. So yeah, it'll be uh, probably uh, four or five months from now. Okay. Ooh, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. Soon. We end yeah. each of these interviews by asking for recommendations for other horror or oh. horror adjacent authors, but I know I've asked okay. you for recommendations like three times, so don't feel <laughs> pressured. But if there are I'm others <laughs> yeah, that you think we should uh, you know, wrangle sure. and get on or just read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Philip Fracassi's books are, are uh, he, he's someone who's recent who I think is doing really interesting work. Eric LaRocca is doing stuff that I really mm-hmm. like as well. I'm um, trying to think of what else I've read lately that have has stood out for me. Um, not much else, I don't think. But but those are are you know two writers I think are doing really interesting. Oh, Erica T. Worth's White Horse I thought was good. Okay, indigenous um, horror that's set in the sea. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean those are probably the ones that most jumped to mind besides the ones I mentioned earlier. Yeah, That's I was going to say, I think a, I think our listeners are going to have a lot of good recommendations out of this app, which is what they're always, lo- which is often what they're looking for, because I think for a lot of big King fans, they're always looking for new horror authors. And right. sometimes it is hard to like navigate like what's good and what isn't in, in that world. Yeah. And so that's one thing we like to talk to all of the people we interview about, uh, yeah. just to get those recommendations like from the sources. So, so thank you so much, Brian. This was absolutely lovely talking to you. Yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah, we'll have a we good loved, one. We up. loved the collection if that wasn't clear. Yeah, it's fantastic. All right. yeah. Good, good, good. <laughs> Thanks so much uh, for having me on. Yeah, mm-hmm. thanks, Bye-bye. Brian. Bye-bye. This is the end of our show. For now. Tune in next week. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more. <laughs>